0: You're listening to the Sustainable Angler Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Crawford. In this episode, I interview author Mark Krolansky and his latest book, Salmon, A Fish, and the Earth and the History of Their Common Fate. We kick off the conversation talking a little fishing then take a deeper dive into the environmental threats to salmon, such as deforestation, insecticides, but mostly climate change, and Mark's aha moment when he looks back through history from the industrial revolution to now and asks why is nobody learning anything from our mistakes with salmon rivers hope you enjoy this episode of the sustainable angler podcast is brought to you by emerger strategies a sustainable business consultancy whose mission is to solve the climate crisis by helping your business go zero waste and carbon neutral. To learn more, visit EmergerStrategies.com. I have a sustainable business consultancy um, that I target companies in the fly fishing industry and uh, work with them to go and carbon neutral and uh, obviously I, I fly fish um, it's kind of married my passion for fly fishing and, and the environment and Is there uh, fly
1: fishing in South Carolina?
0: Oh absolutely um, Red trout or? Uh, Well here on the coast we fly fish for redfish and um, or uh, some people call them spot bass but um, is,
1: that, is that the redfish that they eat in New
0: Orleans? That's exactly right. The black yeah. and redfish. Right. And what we have here in Charleston, um, you can catch them anytime and year round, but the most fun on the fly is during the spring, summer, and fall, uh, particularly the fall's the best, but um, our average tidal swing is five feet. And, a uh, couple days approaching a full moon or a new moon, and after we have what's called flood tides. So our tide gets up to six feet, and whatever that, whenever that happens, our marshes uh, flood, and those redfish come into the grass to escape their predators, but also eat fiddler crabs and shrimp and everything else that's in the marsh. So
1: they're, they're, they're not insectivores,
0: right? Exactly, and so. <laughs>
1: So you use flies that imitate crustaceans and things like that.
0: Exactly, and so whenever they're in the marsh grass, their tails come out of the water. So you're—it's much more like hunting because uh, you're stalking a fish that you can see the direction that it's going, its tails moving, and try and put the fly in front of its face along its path while it's eating.
1: And you can you can stalk them and they don't sense you're there.
0: I, I I kayak, so I'll get out of my kayak and wade, and so I do that you know pretty stealthily um but also like you know i'll be looking out you know 20 30 feet in front of me and we'll look down and they'll be run just standing right next to you you're like i could pick this thing up by the tail right now right and 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 then all of a sudden they do realize that you're there and they spook and and it kind of ruins the fishing but
1: i've 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 had that experience with trout when you think isn't this fly fishing silly? I mean, the thing's right there; we can just pick it up. <laughs> <laughs> All I got to do is
0: put it in front of its face, and it'll eat. I was uh, for the hell of
1: it. I was in. I, I was fishing in in Idaho, and this 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 trout was just nibbling at something on the right against the bank, and I was standing on the bank. So I just dangled my fly and moved the rod, you know. Twenty degrees over <laughs> and it landed trout.
0: <laughs> that's awesome yeah i've i've uh I know some guys that have done that off of uh on the bow of a of a flat skiff with a redfish where they were looking out and it was right next to the boat and they just dipped their fly in the water and it ate it um <laughs> Uh, they just never
1: learn even even with that catch and release you know
0: <laughs> hey i I love it when they're dumb that, that, that's uh I, I do
1: think with catch and release they get smarter trout anyway i
0: think so i i, I was i think the redfish here like in it's noticeably different and like i'm from savannah um which is a couple hours south of charleston and um it's noticeably different. the The pressure you get in Charleston versus Savannah, and they don't see as many flies. It's, it's just a, they just seem to come come to the hand a little bit more easily down there. Um, right. So, so okay.
1: according to according to Jimmy Carter, the fly fishing zone begins somewhere around Atlanta.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: he, he said he, he said that he never. He never fly fished growing up in Georgia because he was in Southern Georgia. And then when he became governor, went to Atlanta, that's when he first started learning about <laughs> fly
0: fishing. It, it, it used to be that way. And um, I mean, I grew up in Savannah and really never even heard of fly fishing. Um, and then I lived out in Wyoming for a few years and in, in Colorado and, and got into fly fishing and came back and it was just like a, a whole new world opened up with saltwater fly fishing that I just didn't really even know existed. Right. Well, that's, I mean,
1: I come from New England and when I was growing up, nobody fly fished in salt water, And and now it's a, it's a big thing.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: Fly fishing for striped bass and things like that.
0: Yeah. Um, the whole striped bass, redfish, tarpon. I mean, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a big, big, big popular thing down here now, which is, you know, in my mind good. I I feel like the, the more fly anglers there are, the more stewards there will be, hopefully. Well, I think that's I think that's true. And
1: and the sport's growing a lot. And interestingly, it's growing largely because of women.
0: Yeah, that's that's what I hear too. Um, that they're getting really into it, which is which is great. It was really,
1: it was really interesting because my, my daughter is a ballet dancer. She's 19 now, but she's been dancing since, I don't know, she was two or something. And when I first took her fly fishing, I guess maybe she was six or seven and she got it immediately and you could show her anything. You didn't even have to show her. You say, this is what mending is. You tell her and she'd do it perfectly or (laughs) drag a roll cast and she'd do it perfectly because she was used to, following instructions for physical moves (laughs) right? and also, I mean, she was, she was so much better than me. I mean, she, she, she rarely lost a a fish that hit. And I think that that's, uh, you know, it's hand-eye coordination. And I I, I think kids have better hand-eye coordination than we do anyway, but, uh, the coordination that it takes for ballet, um, What's her name? Uh Wolf's wife. You know who I'm talking about? Lee Wolf's wife? Uh Joan. Joan, yes. Yep, yeah. She was a dancer. Oh yeah, interesting. She grew up as a dancer and she wrote about this, how dancing was such a great training for fly fishing.
0: Really? That's interesting.
1: Yeah. But I, I could see that immediately with my daughter.
0: Well, I'm I'm just Fingers crossed she uh I don't want to force it on her, but if she gets into this then it is uh I'm I'm looking forward to, to many more days on, on the water with her. I took her fishing in Wyoming for the first time. This past summer she was just in my little backpack and I'd catch a fish and
1: Where where were you fishing?
0: And uh in Jackson, um uh, Jackson Halls where my my wife and I used to live out there before we moved back east and fishing for cutthroats. Cutthroats. Um Just me and her, just me and my daughter. And she handled it like a pro and was laughing every time. You know, she'd get real quiet when I'd hook a fish and was observing and then I'd put the fish in her face and she'd start laughing. So hoping to ingrain these in her memory early of of good times and fishing. Right. (laughs) So, you know, um, my salmon
1: book is published by Patagonia. Yeah, yep. And uh, Ivan Chenard, who founded Patagonia, is one of the world's great fly fishermen.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: And he took me fishing and he has a place outside of Jackson and he took me fishing on the snake, you know, with, uh, it looked just like that famous Ansel Adams photograph, you know, where you see the Grand Tetons up at the end of the snake, just, just really beautiful. The funny thing was that he, uh, you know, he's been pushing these uh, Tinkara rods. Patagonia sells them now. And, uh, you know Tinkara rods? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so uh, he got me to fish with one, which you can do with a cutthroat. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not sure you could do it with a rainbow, and you sure as hell couldn't do it with a salmon. But, you know, because you can't run. Right, right, right. Yeah, there's no... Uh, Yvonne says you just throw the, the, the rod in the water, but... I'm not really sure how that's going to (laughs) work. But uh, so uh, we were fishing on this one bank of the snake and not doing very well. And it looked obvious that the other bank is where we wanted to be. So we crossed over. And as soon as we crossed over, we realized that we were actually in the Grand Teton National Park. And the first thing that happened was a ranger came up and asked for our licenses. and my license had expired because I was fishing an extra day and hadn't been planning on fishing that day. Okay. So, so I, I, I told him, I, don't, I have an expired license. I don't have a license for today. And he looked at me and he said, well, I'm not going to find you because you don't have a fly rod.
0: Tinkara saves the day. Right. <laughs> that's awesome let let, let's let's um let's dive in a little bit on on salmon mark um i have admittedly uh have not done a lot of salmon fishing i have uh done it a couple of days in upstate new york at, at uh tailwater lodge um but those were uh i guess you wouldn't call them sea run i guess but they're, they're fake salmon yeah 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 basically but that that's the extent of uh of, of my salmon fishing but i do know uh based on uh, just that they're basically they're an indicator species um that can help to determine um a lot about the health and i know a little bit about it i know that you know a ton about it so i wanted to Get, just get things kicked off with sort of um, maybe just the background on, on why you chose to, to write about yeah. salmon, and, and, and let's just go from there. Sure. So um, in
1: 1997, I came out with a book about the Atlantic cod, and this book came out around the time that the uh, northern stock of cod in the Canadian Grand Banks collapsed. And really for the first time, people started talking about overfishing and fishing management. Um, By people I mean the general public because I worked as a commercial fisherman when I was a kid in the 60s and that's all fishermen talked about. But the general public was not really very aware of this. And then they became extremely aware of it. And they tend to think that that is the major problem of fisheries and it became clear to me uh as i followed this that uh, that it wasn't but you had to ask why after severely uh restricting fishing in in the gulf of maine cod wasn't coming back or why you know i mean salmon my god atlantic salmon uh th- there's hardly any commercial fishing of atlantic salmon left and salmon is still doing poorly um and w- what's clear is that there's a lot of things going wrong besides uh, overfishing and bad fishery management. And uh, even in places with good fishery management, uh, things aren't going well. And that, in fact, if you could find, and I'm not sure you can, but if you could find a fishery where the only problem was overfishing, that would be great. I mean, right. relatively, that's such a simple problem. Okay. Uh you know, where you could just fix it by fishing less. Um, That almost never happens. There's so many other things. And I thought that salmon was the best way to talk about this because it's an anadromous fish in freshwater and going to sea. uh, So it gets hit with just about everything that we do wrong. Um, And, in fact, nowadays there isn't really a lot of uh, mismanagement and overfishing of salmon, Uh, and it's still doing very poorly Uh, because of uh, deforestation and urban sprawl and pollution and uh, insecticides and bad agricultural practices and dams. And climate change, and climate change, and climate change. <laughs> um,
0: and, 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 that, and that is the, the basically, it's, I think it's what they call a wicked problem, right? Where there's so many different things that are affecting it. Right. Um, it's it's it, like
1: everything we're doing wrong. So you know, there's two ways of looking at this. You could either save salmon by saving the earth. Or you could save the earth by saving
0: salmon. <laughs> you could approach it either way. <laughs> uh, that's that's awesome. That's the so so you look at this this list of of problems, right? You know, as you mentioned, there's overfishing, of course. There's urban sprawl. There's insecticides. But you mentioned climate change three times. Why? Why is that? Uh,
1: because climate change is really is really the big one and um uh although i was very concerned about climate change all along nothing has brought it home to me uh, as as much as looking at salmon is the the implications um, <clears throat> so you could start with you could start with the fact that a salmon cannot live and will not reproduce in uh water that is warmer than 68 degrees so last summer in alaska uh, there were huge runs tremendous runs millions and millions and a lot of them uh just died without spawning because the water was too warm they had an unusually warm summer in alaska a summer like they've never had before um <clears throat> so that's one of the simple problems <laughs> of, right. uh, of climate change uh, there there's there's Many others there's the fact that um, uh, predator fish that you know because nature had this all worked out so there would be these fish you know like striped bass Uh, striped bass is also an anadromous fish and will eat pretty much anything in the river so striped bass don't generally go in there are exceptions uh, but generally, they don't go in the same rivers as salmon because when they do, they eat all the, the par, the young salmon. But now with climate change, uh, stripers are uh, roaming much further north, and they're going into rivers and you know in in, in Labrador and in Newfoundland and northern places and uh, destroying the salmon runs. Um, but the biggest example of what climate change is doing, and this is the one that is really most disturbing to me. Um, I went to uh, salmon places to talk to uh, river managers uh, all over the North Atlantic, in New England, and in Iceland, and Ireland, and Scotland, and Norway, and um, you know, and these are these are places that have little or none of uh, commercial fishing. It's almost completely eliminated, and everywhere I went, um, uh, people would talk about how you know, the salmon come into the rivers, they spawn, the pars develop in the rivers, they go out to sea, and they never see them again, uh, or very few of them are returning. They were returning at a much lower rate. In some cases, like the Connecticut River, they were unable, after spending billions of dollars in a few decades, they were unable to restore the Connecticut River. Um, in part, uh, because I mean partly because there's too many dams, but also uh, so few, hardly any of the fish that made it to sea ever returned. And <clears throat> what is going on is that carbon dioxide loves water. So about a third of the carbon dioxide that's produced ends up in the ocean. And when it goes in the ocean, it impacts on hydrogen. And the result of this uh, uh, hydrogen carbon imbalance is that um, a lot of things don't grow as well as they used to. Uh, Coral, for example, but that's not a salmon problem, but uh, um, zooplankton, and uh, capelin, you know, it's all just much smaller. And capelin is one of the basic fish of uh, salmon, and by the way, also cod. Um, and, you know, they just aren't growing to the size they used to. Uh, and and, and zo- zooplankton isn't producing nearly the nutrition that it used to. And so, what is happening? is that the north atlantic is losing its carrying capacity it is losing its ability to feed the animals that live in it and that is about the scariest thing i've ever learned i mean if, if the ocean can no longer feed the animals that live in it we are sunk
0: right that's terrifying yeah it is isn't it um and this is happening just, uh, so a, a couple things that I that I just want to touch on, which is maybe it's totally unrelated, maybe it's not, but it does seem to be a specific number. You mentioned 68 degrees won't, the salmon won't spawn because the water's too warm, right? Right. What's interesting, and I don't have scientific evidence to to back this up, so I'll preface this by saying that. But what I've always been told with redfish here in Charleston is they're not going to feed, that the crabs don't come out until the water is 68 degrees. So you can't fish for redfish until the water gets to 68 degrees. So who knows if that's a correlation, but I thought that that was interesting. (laughs) But
1: maybe um, scientists are just stuck on the number 68 and it could be 65 or 69.
0: (laughs) Yeah, 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 maybe so. but, uh, so anyway, that, that's a little bit, a little bit off topic, but I thought that that was kind of, kind of interesting, but, uh, what we're also seeing here and, and, and I, and I'm bringing this up just to sort of make it relatable for everyone that this is happening everywhere is, you know, we see it, um, in our, in our crustaceans down here in our shrimp populations and, um, that, that what you mentioned with some of these smaller animals, although shrimp are much bigger than than zooplankton, um, this the little things that have the impact throughout the entire web, and that is what is terrifying, right? Is that this? this so this is happening now. Um, so, I guess a a question I would have as as you mentioned earlier, is you know we can save salmon to save the earth. How do we, how do we do that? Um, what are what <laughs> how how do we make that happen?, oh, it's easy. <laughs> uh,
1: if you look at the uh, this pandemic, coronavirus, <laughs> and <clears throat> what are people doing for the most part? They're doing what they have to do, uh, regardless of the impact on the economy, regardless of the impact on their lives, whatever it is they have to do. They will do it uh, because they have to confront this incredibly destructive thing. Um, that is the way we have to think about climate change. I'm not saying that we do the exact same things as we do for the pandemic, but uh, that kind of that kind of mentality. Uh, we have to do what needs to be done. We 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 have to greatly reduce carbon. Um, And you know, in a lot of cases, it's not about shutting things down like the pandemic, it's about uh working on alternatives. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, if 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 you can't produce carbon, you can still even produce energy that uh doesn't produce carbon, you can uh uh, drive cars that aren't uh using fossil fuel, you could you know. We 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 did all this stuff. We we solved all our technical problems with no thoughts about uh, uh, what we were doing to the planet, and uh, we came up with the wrong solutions. Now we have to go back and come up with solutions that will work.
0: Right. Yeah, and I think that that's you know that, that that's a big part of this um, is you know okay well I, I see uh, climate change is is obviously the most significant threat. To our fisheries, um, and but well, look,
1: I'll, I mean, I mean, look at it this way. I, I you know, I, I had this moment, this kind of aha moment, when working on this book. Um, people always want writers to have an aha moment. <laughs> it's a standard <laughs> interview question, and I usually don't have one. <laughs> um, but um, so I was working on this book, and I was working on the history of salmon going back to ancient times, and there were certain clear problems that kept coming up. Um, obviously, blocking rivers wasn't good. And even in the Middle Ages, there were lots of ordinances against blocking rivers. And the Magna Carta barred the King of England from blocking salmon rivers. Okay. Uh, so this problem was understood. But <clears throat> what happened was the Industrial Revolution. In the Industrial Revolution, um, all of these mills were built. They were built by uh, rivers because rivers had power. And so dams were built on the rivers to power the mills. So now you have the rivers completely blocked, added to which the mills dumped all their pollution back in the rivers. And in not a lot of time, they completely destroyed all the rivers of Britain. And uh, in New England, Uh, they did the same thing, ironically, uh, almost the same people, and people of British origin did the exact same thing. And then, looking at the Pacific Northwest, which was a very economically unproductive area, um, but the rivers were fantastic, fantastically powerful. People like Lewis and Clark were just astounded by how much more powerful Western rivers are than Eastern rivers. And they got this idea that uh, you could build dams and produce a tremendous amount of hydroelectric power and build an economy based on that. And they did that and uh, destroyed the Columbia River and a lot of other rivers in the process. Uh, So I'm researching this and I'm thinking, well, why is it nobody's ever learning anything? And then I realized this was my aha moment. <laughs> I realized that nobody's trying to learn anything; they were <laughs> setting out to accomplish what they did. Um, England had uh, was the, the the greatest industrial power of the industrial revolution in the world. Uh, New England became the greatest industrial center of North America. Um, uh, the Pacific Northwest produced more power than any place else in North America and built this huge economy on it. These are all great success stories, uh, except that they're destroying the planet. All right. Now, so, uh,
0: quick, so, small, small, small footnote.
1: Right. So you're asking me what, what has to be done. What, what, what has to be done is we need to rethink the whole notion of economic development. Uh, I'm not saying... No one is saying that we shouldn't have economic development, that we shouldn't uh, build things and provide jobs. Um, there are people, um, uh, notably in the Republican Party, who uh, are often saying this that, you know, you, you can't do these anti-climate change or environmental things because, you know it'll just take away jobs. Well, nothing says. That you can't have economic development that provides jobs. You just have to change your whole concept of economic development, uh, and that's what has to be done.
0: Yeah, I think that. Um, I I think that that first off, that's an amazing aha moment that <laughs> well, no one's trying to solve anything. Um, but but to your point, I also think that you know cl- climate change can and. I personally think could be the greatest economic opportunity that there is because we could transition our economy to a clean, renewable economy and that would create jobs and that would provide people to service those. uh, It would create jobs and transitioning over to a clean, renewable energy economy. And that would be the definition of, uh,
1: you know know what, I, I I was talking to a, um, uh, an important financial advisor won't name the firm or the person uh and what we were talking about is the fact that oil companies are no longer great investments and that if you want an investment with a future you should look into some of these companies that are producing alternative energy exactly
0: yeah Uh, a, a shift is taking place yeah, yeah, it's 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 starting to happen, I think.
1: But, we no, need... but if 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 the United States sits back and lets Germany and other countries take the lead in 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 producing um, solar and wind turbines and all of these things, uh, they will have lost out on a huge economic opportunity for the U.S.
0: Yep, I agree. Um, and and well, let me a question that I had. Because I know that you've also written, um, you know, you mentioned cod and obviously salmon, um, oysters even, and because I'm a I'm an uh, oyster lover here in the Low Country, and I'm curious. Uh, it seems like there's a common theme of, of delving into the history and and how it has impacted these uh, species. Are do you find? commonalities in all of them um, where the same thing is happening to all these species for the same reasons, or are they, are they totally different?
1: Well, uh, they're certainly not totally different. Uh, They're different. Um, The, what they have in common is the short sightedness of human beings. You know, I was, I was giving a talk at an elementary school in Brooklyn Uh, and I was talking about, uh, my oyster book, not that elementary school kids are going to be reading that book, but, uh, (laughs) the school was interested in me talking about the ideas that were in there. And I was, I was talking about how, and basically that book is, uh, it's about urban pollution. It's about how New York city destroyed its Harbor. Um, And I was talking about how uh, various oyster beds would have to be closed down because they were making people sick uh, because of uh, pollution, mainly raw sewage. Uh, It it took a remarkable amount of time before people understood that dumping raw sewage on your food would make you ill. (laughs) And... Um, and I was talking about how, uh, w- 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 what happened is, you know, Pasteur and Calkin, these people came along that understood about microbes, and then there was the ability, when there was an outbreak, when there was an epidemic, to trace it to its source, and it kept getting traced to uh, uh, one oyster bed or another, and then they would close down that oyster bed. And every time they closed down an oyster bed, I mean, you can go and look this up, Uh, All the New York newspapers, there used to be a lot of them, uh, would have huge front page articles on how this bed was closed down because of, uh, you know, this pollution and how we have to stop doing this or it's going to be a disaster. And yet they kept doing it. And this little boy raised his hand politely, and I called on him, he said, isn't this exactly what's happening with climate change? (laughs)
0: This is why I love talking to kids. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah it is. <laughs> so, yeah, so essentially, our short sightedness and our inability to learn from our mistakes or have a desire to learn from those mistakes is a big part of the problem.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, something that's, that, that's happening that might be a cause for optimism is that more and more people are understanding the consequences of doing these damaging things. Whereas throughout history, they just, they did them and, and, and there were, you know, rare people who who talked about how damaging this was. There were a few uh, notable writers like Charles Dickens talked about how they were destroying the British rivers. And, you know, there were people who knew and understood, but by and large, people weren't bothering about this and more and more people are bothering about it now. And that's a good sign.
0: Yeah, I was going to also ask on, on that note because one of the the things that I do try and um, I, climate change is a, is a major topic on on this podcast and how it impacts our fisheries and, and one of the things that I do always like to try and do is share some success stories or or um, some sense of hope. Are, are are there are there any salmon success stories out there that but um, well, there's
1: some success with other problems.
0: Okay, let's I, let's I, talk I about I that.
1: See, I don't see climate change being solved. I mean, there are some attempts. There's some native tribes that are growing forests that will trap some of the carbon, but this is a pretty small scale solution. Um, they are trying to reforest some rivers, and uh, deforestation is a huge problem for. Uh, salmon rivers because um uh first of all the the the, uh the woods having wooded banks holds the banks in place so you you can see on a river like the river Dee in scotland which is mostly deforested but still has some forested parts in the forested parts it's much uh deeper narrower and faster uh, the river tends to spread out when it doesn't have forests holding holding the banks. Um, but also these forests uh, provide nutrition for the river and for the animals in the river. And it provides uh, shades. I mean, remember that 68 degrees, one thing salmon can do is go to the shaded parts of the rivers. Good fishing tip, by the way. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, no- salmon, Noted. And, uh, Salmon salmon don't like sunny stretches. (laughs) Um, And also rivers, you know, especially uh, first growth uh, forests, you know, huge trees would fall in the river. And, um, you know, as a fly fisherman, you'll appreciate the value of this. What happens to these huge things in the rivers, they create all sorts of... uh, uh, pools and channels and uh, uh, Habitat for uh, salmonates um, So um, Reforesting is a, is a very important thing um, And there's uh, attempts to cut down on pollution and more thought is being given to agricultural processes The problem with agriculture if you're if you're concerned with fish agriculture is a problem because I, I look at this throughout history in 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 japan and in california and everywhere when there's a conflict between agriculture and fish the fish lose <laughs> uh, you know so for example uh they destroyed rivers in japan um to irrigate for rice paddies, flood rice paddies. It was a disaster for the rivers, but uh, it produced the rice. Uh, You see this everywhere. Um, And uh, cattle raising is often destructive of rivers. Um, And uh, people are starting to rethink that also. Um, You know, there again, I'm not saying that you shouldn't have agriculture. I'm just saying that you have to take care of how you do it.
0: Right, right. And 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 not only with um, agriculture, because you, you are, in, in some cases, uh, cutting down land to, to, to plant food, which obviously we need food to eat. But it also, you mentioned earlier, and I assume that you're talking about pesticides from agriculture or... Agricultural runoff, yeah, absolutely. Yeah
1: pesticides really kill salmon Um, and uh, you know for example in in the in Atlantic Canada they had a huge uh, DDT program to um, uh, um, kill off insects that were impacting on the forest because the forestry industry was very important to the economy and these pesticides were really destructive to the rivers. Um, but another good thing that's happening is some dams are actually being torn down. Now, I gotta be realistic about this. Uh, nobody's tearing down uh, dams that, are, that play an important role in the local economy. <laughs> um, right. there, but there are a lot of dams that aren't used very much anymore and sometimes not at all i mean new england is just full of dams that you know they were they were built for mills and textile mills and what are these textile mills doing now they're 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 they're, you know boutique bistros (laughs) Um,
0: this is this is very true
1: So, you know, some dams have been torn down with some some real success. The the, the thing you always have to be aware of, whether you're tearing down dams or, you know, trying to rebuild with hatcheries, which is a very dubious enterprise, uh, the thing you always have to be aware of is that nothing does any good unless you restore the habitat. You have to, the river has to have a, Favorable habitat for the salmon or nothing you do will do any good. So a river like the Penobscot in Maine, they tore down a couple of dams, but before they did that, they cleaned up the river. Had they not cleaned up the river, it would have been
0: pointless. Interesting. And that makes a ton of sense. I mean, you know, when, yeah, when, I mean, when, when you lay it out like that. Uh,
1: but that's, but that's such... Habitat... Is is the entire key. It, it is is why Native Americans could fish salmon very hard, and they did fish it hard. It's a myth that they didn't do much because they were, you know, not a commercial people and not very economically developed. They 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 fished very hard, and they used it as a commodity of trade from one village to another. And they never destroyed the runs because they never destroyed the rivers. And it, that's. There's an idea in most Native American cultures that when nature provides food for you, this is a gift you're being given, you know, and you have to be kind and respectful to people who give you a gift, right? (laughs) (laughs)
0: Again, also seems like common sense, but... Right, so if you're not, you know, if you're not kind to the rivers, they won't give you any more salmon. Uh, Well, it's simple, but it's pretty profound, right? Because it it makes all the difference. Um, All right, so uh, let's see, Mark. We we have covered some some ground. I mean, we we've talked about salmon, the book, which is available through your website and Patagonia. I guess I would assume it's available through my website, through Patagonia, uh, through
1: Bookstore.com, okay. which is a site that will um, that was designed to help out bookstores. Uh, it will get you the book from a, uh, a local bookstore. You know, bookstores, they're still there, and they're still paying their rent, but nobody's going into their stores, so they're really suffering, and they're trying to find ways of selling books online. So you can do that. You can also uh, probably find a website for your local bookstore uh, and and buy the book online. Yep. All
0: right. So we talked about what, one of your books though, that I would like to, which I know we're talking about salmon. And by the way, the title of the book is salmon, a fish, the earth and the history of their common fate. So um, that's primarily what we're talking about, but because I, some of the, the volunteer work I do, uh, we work with our local South Carolina DNR to recycle oyster shells to create new reefs uh-huh. so that so that the oysters have uh, something to attach themselves to. And the idea is that you're then cleaning the water, enhancing the fishery, and it's kind of a, a virtuous cycle. Right. Um, There's a huge oyster planting project in New York Harbor. Yeah, I, I think I've heard it's like a million oysters or something yeah a billion billion okay not that there are a billion but that's the goal and that's the name of the project <laughs> yeah yeah I, th- I think i've heard of that and so i would just be curious um if you had just because i mean you're the amount of research and everything that you've done for your books it's been incredible what what or what have been some of the takeaways in in restoring uh oyster populations um if if you have uh any it, any of that that's still top of mind well you know
1: there again like what i was saying about salmon and rivers it, it, it's all about habitat yep uh you the water has to be a good enough quality for the oysters to grow but it also has to be a good enough quality for the oysters to be edible so mm-hmm. in new york which was one of the great oyster centers of the world um the oysters became too affected by pollution and dangerous to eat. And then the water, then it was closed down, but the water got even worse and it got to the point where um, oysters wouldn't even grow in New York. Uh, And they cleaned it up and now they will grow and now there are oyster beds, but you can't eat them because there's still heavy metals and PCBs in the water. Um, So, you know, if you really want to bring oysters back, you really got to bring the water back first.
0: Yep. Interesting. And that's been, and, and has, has that been, habitat it seems has been the the, the common theme in, in bringing any of these back. But they have these exist, existential threats that are happening to them, to their habitat. Um, such as climate change and runoff and and sprawl and and things of that nature. Is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah,
1: absolutely. And I mean, uh, rivers are there's this huge dead zone in the mouth of the Mississippi River because the Mississippi River dumps so much
0: pollution. That,
1: um, we we have to address these things.
0: Yeah, and and that's something that. So the way that my, my, my feeble mind has has had to try and s- simplify this is it's kind of what I call the there's when it comes to fisheries, there's really three to to really just simplify it, there is what I call the three Ps. So there's population, pollution, and policy. And those within those are a number of other things. So population, overfishing, pollution in the form of CO2, in the form of plastic, in the form of runoff. Um, and then policy such as, you know, Magnus and stevens Act or, um, or, or, or a number of other different policies that, that will influence things like climate or fisheries management. Right.
1: And where you really start getting change is if you can get people behind these policies. Mm-hmm. So that it's not just seen as something government is imposing on them.
0: Yep. Yeah, that's well. No, what what's interesting? I, I did an interview and we talked about that. They're like, if you really want to keep government off your back, you should solve climate change because then you're going to forcibly close things down.
1: Uh, yeah, it, it's uh, what was it uh, Alexander Hamilton? I believe if if men were angels, we would need no government. All <laughs> right. So the more angelic you are, the less government you're going to have to have. <laughs>
0: where so we we mentioned that we can find salmon uh fist the earth and the history of their common fate on your website which is markkerlansky.com also on patagonia and also on bookstore.com if you want to
1: or or on the website of your your local bookstore i i know uh I, i try to buy from uh Friend, Books and Books in Miami has a good website. Uh, Booksmiths in Brookline in Boston has a has a good website. These are just happen to be places I know, but you know, there's there's good websites for lots of uh, bookstores. Let's, let's try to help out independent bookstores because they're they're hurting right now. Yeah, ab- absolutely. It's all over. I want those stores
0: to still be there. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Couldn't couldn't agree. Well, Mark, I, I really do uh, appreciate your, your time and uh, your expertise, and ultimately what you discovered in this book, um, and in others, and I really do, uh, yeah, I really do appreciate you, you carving some time out it. Yeah, well, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for tuning in to the Sustainable Angler podcast and special thanks to Mark Kurlansky. I really learned a lot and and had a great time on this interview. Um, If you want more episodes of the Sustainable Angler, you can find them anywhere you listen to your podcast. So uh, give us a follow, rating and review. That helps uh, the show out a lot. Thanks.